Welcome to the Home Base Travel Agent Show. This is show number 443 and I'm Barry Kantz, your host. In today's show, we are going to talk about astro-tourism. And astro-tourism is about looking up and space tourism is about looking down. Now, at least this is the way that our guest today describes astro-tourism. But astro-tourism is just much more than that. And it really is a fast-growing tourist market you can take advantage of. And I'd be honored to have you join us today and learn more. And if you would, if you would like to learn more about the Home-Based Travel Agent Show or continue listening to future podcasts, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app or go to the website at hometravelagent.net. And there on the website, you can sign up for the newsletter. And then you'll receive, and the newsletter basically is the show notes. And the show notes will come into your email inbox every time a new episode is published. So you'll know right away by checking your email. Now, if you'd like to contact me, you can do that. You can do that by email at Barry, B-A-R-R-Y, at hometravelagent.net. All right, now let's get on with the show and learn about astro-tourism. Welcome, everybody. It's great to have you on board. And today we have a guest, as we always do. Well, typically we do. Sometimes we don't. But today we have a topic that, that I'm not sure that you may have heard about in terms of tourism. And as we get into it, think about that and let me know. Uh, drop me an email, let me know what you think about this topic, because it's it's rather new to me, and I'm sure it may be new to you, and I'd just be interested to know what you're thinking. What I want to do is introduce our guest, Michael Marlin, and Michael prefers to go by Marlin, and, and I'll, I'll probably mess that up a couple of times, uh, calling Michael instead of Marlin, but, you know, that's, that's my issue on this end. Well, I'd like to turn the show over to Marlin and let him give a introduction of himself. He's led an interesting career and let's go. Uh, Michael or Marlon. There we go. Marlon. <laughs> Let me turn it over to you. My career started pretty early. I was doing children's parties when I was in high school. And then at age 17, I was juggling in front of a cheese store and a couple of clowns saw me and uh, offered me a job in the circus. So I was the the quintessential circus runaway. And I uh, had a little spell uh, clowning and then I ended up taking care of elephants for a year in the circus. I uh, went back to uh, Houston where I was living. I was making rent as a talking juggler, comedy juggler by age 19. I was on uh, television. My first television appearance was on Don Kirshner's rock concert. And that'll date me and anybody else who knows who that is. That was 1977, and uh, I had a, uh, a very high-profile career as a comedy juggler. I was the first talking juggler in the history of Las Vegas. I did a bunch of television here and over in Europe, and then it was time for me to reinvent myself. There was a moment between Las Vegas and L.A. where there's a, a swath of desert out there. Some friends of mine took me to see Holly's Comet. And when I saw the sky like that for the first time, 
my first thought was, my God, this goes by unnoticed every night because people's lights are on. That became the genesis of, a, of an idea. I left my career at around age 29, 30. I'd already been doing the juggling thing for well over a decade and moved to the big island of Hawaii. I lived in, uh, in a treehouse that I built no electricity for five years and became very attuned to the rhythm of the the stars, the cycle of the moon, sun, and of course the lava flow right down the street. Um, I created this work called Luma. One night while standing under the stars and looking at the lava with people, they, they look glazed like a deer in the headlight. And then I thought of the plant that turns and faces the sun and how a moth circles around the flame and the thought was gee all life is drawn to light and the next thought was wow the whole show would the whole world would want to see a show like this and then the next thought was oh god i'm going back in the show business which i did and from 1989 to 2018 i toured a show called luma theater of light and luma art and darkness and uh, this was all done in the dark to raise awareness of the loss of our night skies due to light pollution. Uh, in 2017, we were playing in Tahoe. I got an appearance on a radio show and invited the executive director of the International Dark Sky Association, Scott Frerebrand, to be on the show with me. And he invited me to come and speak at the International Dark Sky Association's AGM uh, in 2017 and then again in 2018. As I started listening to the conversations at these conventions about the loss of our night skies and, and light pollution and what can we do, and I went, well, has anybody done any kind of economic study on the number of people who go to see stars? Back in the 40s, this was called astronomical tourism, and it was astronomers and, and uh, professional and amateurs. Nowadays, it's just shortened to astrotourism. And then there was a study done by a couple of PhDs, Galwell and Mitchell, out of Missouri State University. And what they did was they did a simple input-output method and calculated that over the next 10 years, the Colorado Plateau would generate 5.2 billion, with a B, 5.2 billion dollars from astrotourism and create an additional 10,000 jobs every year. So... This really got me excited going, my God, there's, there's, this, is, this is a huge burgeoning market, travel market. So the, the way I ended up writing the book was I saw an ad in LinkedIn uh, looking for authors. And it was business publishing outfit, business expert press. And they do books on management or economic trends and stuff like that, business stuff. But there was also a section for tourism. So I pitched them, pitched this, this idea of doing a book on astrotourism. And the publisher, like you, didn't know what it was. But his editor did, because she taught tourism and hospitality at New Mexico University. And she goes, oh yeah, this is, this is a deal now. This is, this is happening. And Condé Nast wrote, I think, uh, several years ago, you know, astrotourism is now a thing. So I pitched them this idea for a book on this new market, and that's how I ended up writing it. Yeah, that's interesting. And astrotourism is more than just dark skies. And I'd like to talk a little bit more about dark skies as we come up. But And astrotourism isn't necessarily space tourism. Those two are different, yeah. right? Yeah, so 
the distinction I make to make it fun for people is with astrotourism, you go to a place to look up. With space tourism, you go to a place and look down. And astrotourism includes a lot of different things. I actually expanded on the field. In the book, I write about how tourism is changed by technology. And the example I use is scuba, self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. Well, back in the 50s and 60s, there was just a few people who did this. Now it's millions uh, all over the world doing uh, dive vacations and, and diving. So that's an example of technology changing tourism. And as technology around space changed, going to see a rocket launch, that was now included in in, in space tourism. In Valerie Stimmick's book, uh, Dark Skies, she comments on how space camp, or space camps, astro-themed hotels, CERN or JPL, all part of astro-tourism. There are a lot of other celestial events to go see besides just simply the, you know, the stars, which is quite a bit right there. There's, you know, there's satellites to spot, there's lunar eclipses, there's solar eclipses, there's uh, alignments, there's the aurora borealis, there's sun dogs, there's green flash, there's a zodiac, uh, zodiacal light. So there's a number of different things you can see in the sky, uh, uh, including things like, you know, the golden hour and the blue hour. And I, I expanded what astrotourism is by including astronomical clocks going back to the 14th century, star clocks, which are also called sundials, and how those have uh, progressed over the years, and megaliths, uh, these uh, earthworks that were built thousands of years ago that are aligned to stellar uh, movement. So that's the uh, definition of astrotourism. And because 80% of North Americans can't see the Milky Way anymore, more and more people are traveling to take in the last remaining dark skies. Yeah, you know, I have to comment on a personal experience of mine. I, uh, several years ago, I, we went to Northern Michigan and, and rented a, a kind of a bed and breakfast place and it was way out in the woods in Northern Michigan. And one night we walked outside, I looked up and, and honestly, my, my breath was taken away. I, I had never seen such an amazing sight as the sky without the background light. It it was just astounding. Yes, there's all kinds of anecdotal stories of people weeping the first time they see the Milky Way. And, And that could either be from the magnificence of it all and a sense of expansion that humans don't usually have, be connecting to eternity, really, or weeping because of what they've been missing their entire life. But... You know, heaven has always been up. Yeah, it, it was an amazing... That's yeah. pretty heavenly. Those are the heavenly bodies. Yeah, and it, it, it's really surprising what you, what you miss out on. Oh, absolutely. You know, the way that I phrase this is, if, if we can't see the heavens that we belong to, how long does it take before we forget that we belong to the heavens? Yeah, we, we are, are literally made out of stardust. You know, we're, we're carbon-based, and, and that carbon comes from the stars, exploding stars. So we, we certainly have a connection. <laughs> Maybe not a, con- not, a, not a mental connection, but we certainly have a physical connection. Well, you know, I really think that we do have, a, I would say, like a DNA connection. Because 
we as a species have been exposed to starlight for as long as we've been on this planet. The oldest stories we tell are the stories of the stars. So it's impossible to think that we're not in some way connected to all of that. And we only have lost our connection to the rest of the cosmos within the last 20, 30 years. I mean, really in the span of one lifetime. So we don't really know what we might have been taking in as far as information by having starlight enter our eyes. I mean, the tremendous irony here is that starlight that we're looking at has traveled millions and millions of light years to reach our eyes and it gets shouted out right there at the finish line because of a streetlight overhead or because of sky glow from a city. So I think for most people... Yeah, we're literally looking back in time as we gaze into the stars. Yes, yes, we are looking back in time. So that's what I'm saying. That's our, our connection to eternity. Yeah, there are dark sky parks popping up all over the place. I think those dark sky parks have a lot of significance to tourism and also for the communities where the parks are located. Can you talk, talk a little bit about that? Oh, absolutely. Thank you for the question. The International Dark Sky Association, as well as the Starlight Foundation, which is based in Europe, the International Dark Sky Association has been certifying parks and reserves and sanctuaries and communities since around 2006. And it's about a one to two year process to get this certification. There's about 200 of them now online and a whole bunch more people and places are applying for it. Uh, in my book, I point to the amount of growth of visitation around these places that have dark sky certification. And it is, and I always love a pun, an astronomical amount of growth based on these certifications. I mean, anywhere from 68% to 327% increase of visitation around these places that have been certified dark sky parks and reserves. Sanctuaries are usually way, way, way out there and are the most distant to get to. But as far as parks go, absolutely. Again, the one of the things that, that really causes an increase of spending in these locales is astrotourism requires an overnight stay. Well, once you have that overnight stay, you have the tourist dollar going into the local economy via restaurants or gift shops or, you know, all the ways their, their tourist dollars goes into the community. And another wonderful thing about this is that it spreads the tourist dollar out to a much greater number of people in these far-flung places that never would have the opportunity to participate in the, uh, the tourist dollar. So it's really been a boon for some of these distant locales. One example is the Great Karoo southern, in South Africa, which is kind of uh, northeast of Cape Town. The area kind of looks like our American Southwest. Well, there's a, a telescope there, South, Amer uh, South African Large Telescope, SALT. Some neighborhoods around that particular telescope started to spring up and having a thematic around the stars, like the Jupiter restaurant or the, 
the, the Glitterland Hotel or bed and breakfast. So these aster economies are starting to spring up around these large astronomical installations. Same thing in Chile. When people go there, you can't, you can't go see the, the telescope and the, the big scientific you know, installation, but private enterprises have been building their own observatories and populating them with their own telescopes, which can range anywhere from $22,000 down to $200. After my experience staying at the at this bed and breakfast in northern Michigan, oh, maybe three or four years ago, we were up in Mackinac City, Michigan, and I noticed that they had a dark sky park up there. I couldn't resist. I had, I had to go there, and we went there with a group of friends that we were with and waited for the, the sun to set. But unfortunately, it was cloudy that day, but it was a fantastic park. It had a like an outdoor auditorium seating, places where you could set up your telescope. There was a gift shop there, as you mentioned, and it was overlooking Lake Michigan, uh, which was pretty in and of itself. If I could have seen the dark sky, it would have been much better, uh, but we couldn't because of the cloud cover. But one of the things about these parks are you, you almost have to have an overnight stay involved because you're up late watching the dark sky. So usually there's a hotel room or something involved in all of this, and the end result can be a trip in and of itself, and I think that's of interest to the travel community, is that these parks and sanctuaries are a destination, I think, an overlooked destination that we can take advantage of. Absolutely. In the book, I, I speak to different ways to create your own destination for anybody who's living underneath a dark sky. The way that I, I, I phrase this, I, I gave a, a, a lecture not too long ago to the 15th annual European Dark Sky Symposium. And the slides I used was, uh, here's a picture of a piece of land. Let's say this piece of land goes for, okay, whatever. Let's say $5,000 an acre. Now, if you discover water on that property, now it may jump to... $10,000 an acre. If you find zinc on that property, now it's maybe $50,000 an acre. If you find gold, now it's maybe $3 million an acre, and so on. People living underneath a dark sky are literally living under a diamond mine. Up above the world so high, like a diamond in the sky. Twinkle, twinkle, you know the rest of it. So the point being is if you have a dark sky, if you have a truly dark sky, that is a natural resource that's worth protecting and will continue to generate the visitation so long as you maintain that dark sky and provide a setting for people to view the sky. There's these inflatable domes now that people can sleep under. There's glass igloos that are available that they've been using in, in Finland since 1991, which would be perfect up in the upper peninsula where it's so cold. But then there's other ways to, to generate interest. You know, some communities have these planetary walks. You know, you start at the sun and you walk so many feet out and now you're at Mercury and now you're at Venus and now you're at Earth and they've got placards and some of them are as big as a county. Some people and some communities are starting to cultivate destination opportunity to attract more visitors. And for the travel agent, Gee, you know, you can, you can take a trip down the road or you can take a trip to the eternity by sending them to a place that has uh, truly dark skies. I would agree. This, this really is an opportunity to, uh, 
look at other destinations uh, that you can put on your shelf as products in the travel agency. And more and more people are, are interested in these types of def- destinations because people are more interested in having experiences rather than going somewhere to shop or party or just lay on the beach. They, they want experiences. And this is another one of those things that, that will give people a, just a, an amazing experience. And I, I know that from my own personal experience that I just outlined. Yes. Most people don't forget the first time they saw the sky in all of its glory. It's usually something that sticks with them. And my earliest remembrance goes back to my uh, childhood uh, living in uh, Florida and being in the backyard and just seeing the blaze of stars. I mean, it was just so insanely bright. And then also remember the very first streetlight going up in my neighborhood. And it was such a novelty. Ooh, look at that, a streetlight. But now the light pollution is the the biggest driver of astrotourism and also its greatest threat, which is an interesting anomaly. Yeah, how many people in the world do not live in an area where there are dark skies? Well, a report, a nighttime atlas that was created by Christopher Kaiba and some other uh, scientists They basically came to the conclusion like 99% of the world's population lives under some form of light pollution in in modicums thereof. In a a place where there's no street lights or or spill coming out from yards, you should be able to see about 2,500 stars. In, In a typical suburban setting, well less than 300. And and here's the thing about, you know, preserving dark skies. Most tourists that go who are naturalists and I will say like hikers to divers they participate in some form of preservation so people who dive reefs would probably join um, you know the ocean alliance or greenpeace something that's going to preserve the reef they just don't, they they just have their dive on people who are river rafters will probably join some kind of an alliance to preserve the river that they're on Hikers and campers join the Sierra Club to preserve the the parks and, and wildness that they're enjoying. And the same is true with astrotourists. They're going to do what's necessary to preserve this dark sky, this, this precious natural resource that's disappearing within a lifetime, a lifetime after hundreds of thousands of lifetimes of us seeing it. The, the, the type of people who are going to take in a dark sky and really get it are also the same people who are going to want to preserve it. And, and that's really what's uh, necessary for this to be able to continue. Yeah. In your book, and I don't know if you've mentioned this, more than 80% of the world and more than 99% of the U.S. and European populations live under light polluted skies. And that was an amazing statistic for me to read in your book. Yes, just to, for, for clarification, it's 80% of North Americans can't see the Milky Way, 60% of Europeans, and 99% of the world's population has some form of light pollution, some form of it. Now, uh, a way to determine this is we've all seen pictures of the Earth at night from the satellites. Well, those are relatively new. Those are not that old. Anytime that you can see light from space, that is wasted light because it's going up 
And if it's going up, it's not hitting its target. So 30% of all the light that's used outdoors is oh, wasted. Yeah, that makes sense. It's wasted. It creates greenhouse gases. Uh, it increases your costs. What, what I've, I've lectured to different uh, communities, city councils, county councils, tourism agencies. And one of the things that I point out is dark sky initiatives. If you put in dark sky initiatives, you're going to reduce your carbon emission and reduce greenhouse gas. You're going to reduce energy consumption. You're going to reduce your cost. You're going to improve your safety because these white glaring lights are unsafe. They create harsh shadows and sometimes it's difficult to see the pedestrian in the walkway if you're being blinded by a white light. It's going to protect nocturnal wildlife like night pollinators and migratory birds and bats. It's going to protect human health. There's been a number of studies that show how light pollution uh, impacts human health by disrupting circadian rhythms, um, as well as being linked to other diseases like diabetes and obesity and some forms of cancer. Dark sky initiatives are going to preserve cultural heritage because we can see the stars and our stories about the stars are connected to them. It's going to be an economic stimulator going to improve aesthetics and it's also even going to improve property values as demonstrated in uh, some new developments outside of Denver. They actually advertise dark skies because we built the neighborhood in such a way to preserve them. So there's a lot of upside to preserving the dark. For the, the listeners, there's so much to see up there. There truly, truly is so much to see up there. And it's necessary, I think, for the vendor to be able to connect the dots for their guests. The dark sky movement is is great, and we, we need to take advantage of that and, and to preserve the dark skies. But just another point, astrotourism also involves the solstices. There are ancient monuments designed right around those solstices, and those are big tourist destinations as well. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. For like several thousand years, these have been destinations for people to visit. There's a, a segment in my book that covers the variety of different places, some of them dating back to 7,000 BC, that were aligned to solstices and equinoxes and uh, the tracking. This is the thing that's, for me, that's so fascinating about the stars and, and humanity's connection with it. The stars, by watching them, taught us when to plant, when to harvest, when the animals would migrate, when it was time to shear the sheep, when it was time to gather eggs. It allowed us to navigate across the sea and the land, allowing us to spread our species. Without the stars and our connection to them, humanity probably would not have been able to grow as much as it did. It was absolutely necessary for us to have that connection. And now, now with the invention of indoor plumbing, most of us are, have lost our connection to the night sky. Yeah, that's true. I, I remember as a, as a boy visiting my grandparents in northern Michigan, uh, they had the outhouse, and that definitely got you outside at night. Well, this, this has all been really fascinating, Marlon. And if you could tell us, and well, first of all, for the listeners, if you want to learn a lot more, a lot more detail about tourism and astrotourism, dark skies, and many other aspects of astrotourism. Pick up the book, and I'm going to let Marlon 
give us the title to the book and how you might contact him and find out more information. Thanks. Uh, the name of the book is Astrotourism, Stargazers, Eclipse Chasers, and the Dark Sky Movement. There's going to be a big eclipse coming on in 2024 that's going to go up through the center of America, and it's going to be much bigger than the one in 2017. And this is an interesting fact for your readers. After famine and war, more people migrate temporarily to see an eclipse than anything else. After famine and war, more people migrate to see the eclipse. And I can be reached at my phone number, if you want to call me, I'm always open for that, is 702-274-8788. Again, that's 702-274-8788. And you can find me at my website, mindofmarlin.com. Yeah, and, and I'm glad you brought that up, the, the eclipse that's coming up the big mass migration that results from the eclipse, that migration actually means for the travel agent that you have an opportunity to uh, book some travel for people who want to travel to the to the eclipse where they can see it the best. And that is basically a couple of years away. So, you know, time to start planning uh, maybe some trips and tours and that types of things. Uh, now is the time. It's an opportunity. You know, Marlon, I, I want to thank you for being a part of the show. Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, absolutely. People are already booking their, their places now for that, for the 2024 eclipse. So it's not too soon to start now for all the travel agents listening to the, yeah, planning planning your uh, your opportunity because <laughs> it, it's going to create the biggest traffic jam you could possibly even ever imagine. Uh, all of those people trying to get to the... Uh, the totality, uh, the the center of the uh, the shadow, so that'll that'll also be uh, epic. Uh, so that's why it's good to get into get into place uh, early and and to stay a little bit later. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's a rare opportunity to have the the center of the eclipse come so close to home for us in the United States. So, and there's opportunities to book book travel as a result. So, uh, there you go. And Marlon, once again, thank you for being a part of the show. I really appreciate it. And a very interesting topic and another up-and-coming topic for people in the travel trade industry. I think we need to pay attention to this. It's just fantastic. You know, I can't say enough about having that experience that I had the first time of, of seeing the dark sky. And Marlon, once again, thanks so much for the interview and the opportunity to have you on the show. Thanks, Barry. And uh, stay light and enjoy the dark. Thank you. And let me let me leave one last one last thought for your listener. One last thought. And that is as 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 children, as children we were afraid of the darkness. But when we grew up and became adults, we learned that some of the best times we would ever have in our lives were when the lights were out. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks, Marlon. Thank you. Aloha. Bye-bye. Well, I want to thank Marlon for being a guest on our show and for letting us know about the fascinating world of astro-tourism. And if you're interested in Marlon's book, I have a link to the book in my show notes at hometravelagent.net. And the book goes into a lot more detail uh, than what we've gone into in the podcast, and it's a fascinating book. I've read it. And thank you for being here with us at the Home Base Travel Agent Show. We will return with another show in a few short days, 
and I look forward to bringing you a guest who will tell us about the best way to learn about a city, and that city may be on your client's destination list. So, until next time, travel safe, stay healthy, and bye for now.